Section 1 of Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Harvey. Revolution by Mac Reynolds. Section 1. Before you wish for something or send agents to get it for you, make very, very sure you really want it. You might get it, you know. Preface. For some 40 years, critics of the USSR have been desiring, predicting, not to mention praying for its collapse. For 20 of these years, the author of this story has vaguely wondered what would replace the collapsed Soviet system. A return to czarism? No, come now. Capitalism as we know it today in the advanced Western countries? It would seem difficult after almost half a century of state ownership and control of the means of production, distribution, communications, education, science. Then what? The question became increasingly interesting following recent visits not only to Moscow and Leningrad, but also to various other capital cities of the Soviet complex. A controversial subject? Indeed it is. You can't get much more controversial than this in the world today. But this is science fiction, and here we go. Paul Kozlov nodded briefly once or twice as he made his way through the forest of desks. Behind him, he caught snatches of tittering voices and whisper. That's him, the chief's hatchet man. Know what they call him in Central America? A pistola. That means about Iraq and that time in Egypt. Did you notice his eyes? How would you like to date him? That's him. I was at a cocktail party once when he was there. Shivery. Cold-blooded. Paul Kozlov grinned inwardly. He hadn't asked for the reputation, but it isn't everyone who's a legend before 35. What was it Newsweek had called him? The T.E. Lawrence of the Cold War. The trouble was it wasn't something you could turn off. It had its shortcomings when you found time for some personal life. He reached the chief's office, rapped with a knuckle, and pushed his way through. The chief and a male secretary, who was taking dictation, looked up. The secretary frowned, evidently taken aback by the cavalier entrance, but the chief said, Hello, Paul, come on in. Didn't expect you quite so soon. And to the secretary, Dickens, that's all. When Dickens was gone, the chief scowled at his troubleshooter. Paul, you're bad for discipline around here. Can't you even knock before you enter? How is Nicaragua? Paul Kozlov slumped into a leather easy chair and scowled. I did knock. Most of it's in my report. Nicaragua's tranquil. It'll stay tranquil for a while, too. There isn't so much as a parlor pink. And Lopez? Paul said slowly. Last time I saw Raul was in a swamp near Lake Managua. The very last time. The chief said hurriedly, Don't give me the details. I leave details up to you. I know, Paul said flatly. His superior drew a pound can of Sir Walter Raleigh across the desk, selected a briar from a pipe rack, and while he was packing in tobacco, said, Paul, do you know what day it is and what year? It's Tuesday in 1965. The bureau chief looked at his desk calendar. Um... Today, the seven-year plan is completed. Paul snorted. 
The chief said mildly, successfully, for all practical purposes, the USSR has surpassed us in gross national product. That's not the way I understand it. Then you make the mistake of believing our propaganda. That's always a mistake, believing your own propaganda, worse than believing the other man's. Our steel capacity is a third again as much as theirs. Yes, and currently, what with our readjustment, remember, when they used to call them recessions, or even earlier, depressions, our steel industry is operating at less than 60% of capacity. The Soviets always operate at 100% of capacity. They don't have to worry about whether or not they can sell it. If they produce more steel than they immediately need, they use it to build another steel mill. The chief shook his head. As long ago as 1958, they began passing us, product by product, grain, butter, and timber production, jet aircraft, space flight, and coal. Paul leaned forward impatiently. We put out more than three times as many cars, refrigerators, kitchen stoves, washing machines, his superior said. That's the point. While we were putting the product of our steel mills into automobiles and automatic kitchen equipment, they did without these things and put their steel into more steel mills, more railroads, more factories. We leaned back and took it easy, sneered at their progress, talked a lot about our freedom and liberty to our allies, and the neutrals and enjoyed our refrigerators and washing machines until they finally passed us. You sound like a TASS broadcast from Moscow. Um, I've been trying to, the chief said. However, that's still roughly the situation. The fact that you and I personally, and a couple of hundred million Americans, prefer our cars and such to more steel mills, and prefer our personal freedoms and liberties, is beside the point. We should have done less laughing seven years ago and more thinking about today. As things stand, give them a few more years at this pace, and every neutral nation in the world is going to fall into their laps. That's putting it strong, isn't it? Strong, the chief growled disgustedly. That's putting it mildly. Even some of our allies are beginning to waver. Eight years ago, India and China both set out to industrialize themselves. Today, China is the third industrial power of the world. Where's India? About 20th. Ten years from now, China will probably be first. I don't even allow myself to think where she'll be 25 years from now. The Indians were a bunch of idealistic screwballs. Yeah, that's one of the favorite alibis, isn't it? Actually, we, the West, let them down. They couldn't get underway. The Soviets backed China with everything they could toss in. Paul crossed his legs and leaned back. It seems to me I've run into this discussion a few hundred times at cocktail parties. The chief pulled out a drawer and brought forth a king-sized box of kitchen matches. He struck one with a thumbnail and peered through tobacco smoke at Paul Kosloff as he lit up. Uh, the point is that the system the Ruskies use when they started their first five-year plan back in 1928 and the system used in China works. If we, with our traditions of freedom and liberty, like it or not, it works, every citizen of the country is thrown into the grinding mill to increase production. Everybody, the chief grinned sourly. That is, except the party elite, who are running the whole thing. 
everybody sacrifices for the sake of the progress of the whole country. I know, Paul said. Give me enough time and I'll find out what this lecture is all about. The chief grunted at him. The commies are still in power. If they remain in power and continue to develop the way they're going, we'll be through, completely through, in another few years. We'll be so far behind, we'll be the world's laughingstock, and everybody else will be on the Soviet bandwagon. He seemed to switch subjects. Ever hear of Somerset Magum? Sure, I've read several of his novels. I was thinking of Magum, the British agent, rather than Magum, the novelist, but it's the same man. British agent? Um, he was sent to Petrograd in 1917 to prevent the Bolshevik Revolution. The Germans had sent Lenin and Zinoviev up from Switzerland, where they'd been in exile, by a sealed train in hopes of starting a revolution in Tsarist Russia. The point I'm leading to is that in one of his books, The Summing Up, I believe Maga mentions in passing that had he got to Petrograd possibly six weeks earlier, he thinks he could have done his job successfully. Paul looked at him blankly. What could he have done? The chief shrugged. It was all-out war. The British wanted to keep Russia in the Allied ranks so as to divert as many German troops as possible from the Western Front. The Germans wanted to eliminate the Russians. Magum had carte blanche. Anything would have gone. Elements of the British fleet to fight the Bolsheviks, unlimited amounts of money for anything he saw fit from bribery to hiring assassins. What would have happened, for instance, if, if he could have had Lenin and Trotsky killed? Paul said suddenly, What has this all got to do with me? We're giving you the job this time. <laughs> Magum's job? Paul didn't get it. No, the other one. I don't know who the German was who engineered sending Lenin up to Petrograd, but that's the equivalent of your job. He seemed to go off on another bent. Did you read uh, Gilla's The New Class about a decade ago? Most of it, as I recall. One of Tito's top men who turned against the commies and did quite a job of exposing the so-called classless society. That's right. I've always been surprised that so few people bothered to wonder how Gilas was able to smuggle his book out of one of Tito's strongest prisons and get it to publishers in the West. I never thought of it, Paul agreed. How could he? Because, the chief said, knocking the ash from his pipe and replacing it in the rack, there was and is a very strong underground in all the communist countries. Not only Yugoslavia, but the Soviet Union as well. Paul stirred impatiently. Once again, what's all this got to do with me? They're the ones you're going to work with. The anti-Soviet underground. You've got unlimited leeway. Unlimited support to the extent we can get it to you. Unlimited funds for whatever you find you need them for. Your job is to help the underground start a new Russian revolution. End of section one. Recording by Paul Harvey.